0: Good morning, New Song, LA. This past week has been a very difficult one um, as we have watched so much violence in our streets and watched people um, desperate and upset over the injustices that took place in our country this week. And as I'm reflecting on these things, reflecting especially uh, on the... the uh, death of another unarmed black man. Um, this gets really personal for me. Um, I know some people look at the protest and especially here in Los Angeles, we've had fires, we've had looting and rioting and, and people look at that and think, you know, there's no excuse for that kind of, of lawlessness in the streets. But if you don't have a context for what you see, it doesn't make sense at all. And there's no... Um, a justification that I'm going to offer for people taking it to the point of violence and looting but I do want to offer an explanation of what generates that level of emotion what causes people to have that much pent up anger if we're talking about one incident if we're talking about one thing that happened perhaps the level of emotion would not make sense but we're talking about a history that goes back 400 years. We're talking about people being uh, dragged off to this country against their will, enslaved, and then in successive uh, new iterations of persecution, experiencing really an unbroken chain of injustice. Let me tell you about uh, an incident that I experienced that brought all of this to mind. Two incidents that I will share with you. One of them is when I was living in Atlanta, Georgia and I had a, a paper that was due for graduate school and stayed up late and wanted to deliver it to the dorms, or, or rather to the campus, to my fellow students, my section of this project. And as I rode my motorcycle over to the campus, I saw sirens and I was pulled over. I knew I was in trouble because I was riding without a helmet. My helmet had been stolen a day before. but. For that traffic violation, I was arrested. I was put in handcuffs. The bike was confiscated. I never saw it again. Within a few hours, I was in an orange jumpsuit in a cell with 32 men. It wasn't until sometime the next day that I was allowed to see a judge, and I went before the judge, chained and shackled at my feet, chained to to nine other men, shuffling down a hallway into the courtroom, and there, face the judge because I violated the traffic laws. I can't describe to you the kind of terror that that brought to me. I didn't know anyone's phone number in Georgia at the time. The only people's phone numbers I had memorized were my family who were living all the way back here in California. And uh, it got me curious about how the justice system works. I mean, why would a person be arrested and put into an orange jumpsuit for violating a traffic violation. What I found out is there's a lot of discretion that police officers have. They can decide whether to give somebody a pat on the wrist, whether to give them a ticket, or whether to arrest them and put them in chains. I found out later that in the city there were two areas where people went for recreation. There was kind of a racial divide in the city of where people liked to socialize. And one area was Buckhead and the other was the underground. The underground was an area where there were predominantly African-Americans going to dance clubs and Buckhead was an area where there were predominantly white folks who were uh, going to bars. And there was a place we called the pub crawl where you could go from bar to bar. While I was in graduate school, I actually visited both areas. And one of the things that I noticed was, in that area of Buckhead, where people went from bar to bar and ended the night completely inebriated, there were no police officers patrolling that area. But in the area where the dance places were, in uh, in the underground, where the African-Americans went out to socialize, there would be these police guarding the exit from those areas so that people could be stopped and checked for for inebriation and there were lots of traffic violations as well as DUIs and people were routinely arrested on a weekly basis in that area. Just the decision of where you put the police, what area you decide to patrol, led to a very high concentration of arrests of one group and no arrests of another. And when you look at the United States, this is the pattern that you see in law enforcement. You find that African Americans are more likely to be stopped, more likely to be arrested, more likely to have a severe sentence for the exact same crime. And when you take away all other disparities and control for them, you find that this one factor of race leads to A greater tendency to be stopped, a greater tendency to be arrested, a greater tendency to be convicted, and a greater tendency to have higher sentences. The entire system is working directly against people of color, and these disparities have gone on for generations. Why is it that way? When I think back about the rioting taking place in the street, it got me curious because I also uh, have been wondering about this pandemic you know we've been pent up for all of these weeks and people have a lot of pent-up energy and frustration and i thought you know this isn't the first time we've faced a pandemic it's unique it's worse than things we faced in the past in many ways but we have uh, an ability to respond in better ways than we have in the past i went back again to that that flu pandemic of 1918 and i found that there's some unique parallels to what happened then and what is happening now. After the pandemic was winding down, it was a time when, when soldiers had just come back from World War I and many of those soldiers, African-Americans who had fought in World War I, were returning to a country with racial segregation and oppression. And they were trying to protect their communities. They were also trying to find jobs just like all the other GIs that had come back from the war. And so in 1919, You had what was called Red Summer, where riots broke out throughout the United States, racial riots where whites were attacking blacks in cities all over the United States. Thousands upon thousands of people were murdered and lynched and these soldiers who had returned from the war bravely defended their communities against the onslaught of these riots. And I thought about the tensions happening then. You had a pandemic where people were pent up uh, in, in 1918, toward the end of 19, or the end of 1918 into 1919. You had people who were dealing with the devastation of the economy, people who were trying to find jobs and were frustrated over that. And then you had a powder keg of racial tension and resentment against black people that led to this dramatic wave of violence across the country. As we fast forward to our time now, we have a time of pent up um, tension over this pandemic. We have a time of people wondering about their financial future as the economy has been devastated. And then we have these incidents of racial attacks against black people and people are crying out, enough is enough. We want justice now. What does the Bible have to say about all of this? We are in a series entitled, The Struggle is Real, uh, Wrestling with Faith. And I wanna share with you from scripture, a perspective on this kind of response to injustice and how we got to where we are and what the future should look like or what the path ahead might be. I wanna make some suggestions about how we move forward together. As I do that, I want to begin our time with prayer, and and then we'll jump into some scripture together as we set up our understanding and our study of these issues. Father, please give us wisdom and guidance. Please give us deep understanding, Lord, to know how to respond to injustices that we see, to know how to respond to our own emotions And to know, Lord, what you demand of us and what we can expect of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our message today is The Struggle for Justice. The Struggle for Justice. We did not arrive at people gathering by the thousands in the street overnight. We got here through a system that has been going on for generations. And just this past week as we look at the dominoes that fell into place to get us to where we are right now, we had the incident of one man jogging in a neighborhood and then a couple of trucks come chasing him with armed men demanding to talk to him. And this African-American man, he uh, is, is, continues to run along until they cut him off and one gets out of the car with a shotgun. And in the struggle, this this African-American man loses his life and for months that case is not tried at all. In fact, it's dismissed and the government officials that are supposed to prosecute recuse themselves, kick the can down the road, no, tr- no charges are ever brought and somebody releases a cell phone video and because of that cell phone video now there has been an arrest, and now these men are facing murder charges, three men. Three men, two of which uh, are connected to law enforcement, one who actually had, had served in law enforcement and had connections within the city, and that's the reason why he was not prosecuted. The thing is, though, if there had been no cell phone footage, he would have gotten away, they would have gotten away with murder, and it happens all the time when there are no cameras present. Another incident, a guy is walking in a park, he's watching some birds in Central Park and this man, Christian Cooper, notices yet another dog running off the leash, trampling those beautiful flowers that attract the birds and as he confronts this young woman, and asks her to leash her dog. An argument ensues between the two of them. He says that he's going to to do whatever he wants if she does whatever she wants. And he pulls out some treats to give to the dog and begins filming her with her dog off the leash. In response to that, this woman, Amy Cooper, says, I am going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening my life. In that moment, so much is revealed, so much is revealed, it's like a curtain is pulled back on what is really happening in our country just below the surface. You see, this is not some right-wing, conservative, racist, white woman who makes this statement. In fact, her liberal uh, credentials are impeccable. She gave to a democratic political campaign. In fact, even in her threat to this African-American man, she uses uh, the correct progressive language. She doesn't call him black. She doesn't use the N-word. She refers to him as African-American with all of the progressive politeness and political correctness, even as she threatens to weaponize the police against him with a deep understanding that the police are Uh, disproportionately likely to protect a white woman and to see an African-American man as a threat. All of the history of lynchings lynchings with false accusations are summoned in an instant. All of the disparities within the judicial system are summoned in an instant as this woman weaponizes this threat. And you watch as her voice escalates to the point where if you were on the other end of that phone, you would think that she was in severe distress, but the video shows that it was her who ran at the man and she was far away from him and holding her dog, who was screaming in the background, while she made these comments. It was a great theatrical performance worthy of an award. And when we see that, and we realize this kind of thing happens all the time, it stirs in us an emotional response. I remember being in a parking lot here in Los Angeles and I was trying to pick a paint for uh, a portion of our house Two paint samples just seemed too close to one another. I couldn't tell exactly which one to pick, and so I took the samples outside, and I put them on the back of my car, and I was trying to check them out in sunlight and just couldn't make a decision. I saw a woman walk by with her teenage son, and I approached them and from about 10 feet away said, can you tell me which one of these you think? And before I could get the sentence out of my mouth, This white woman screamed at the top of her lungs, get away from me, get away from me, you're attacking me, get away from me. I wasn't close enough to touch her, I was far away, and I said, I'm not coming near you, I'm not coming near you. She screamed, her son looked at me with pleading eyes as if to say, I'm sorry, and he came toward me to try to look at the samples that I was showing, and his mom grabbed him by the collar, screaming at the top of her lungs, and I looked over as security guards began to approach the situation and wondered if I was safe. As I backed up and they realized that there was really nothing going on, I found myself emotionally shaken and, as a grown man, <laughs> broke down and cried, thinking to myself, my appearance is enough to evoke in another person fear. And hatred. And as I talk to my brothers and sisters, my African-American uh, um, you know, brothers and, and sisters, we find that we carry around this kind of weight all the time, just beneath, beneath the surface. And we know that the racialization of our society is something that even when we try to put it aside, it can rise to the surface in an instant. And that brings us then to the other cell phone footage of this police investigation of a guy who brought a $20 bill into a store that turned out to be counterfeit. The owner of that store, in talking about the incident afterwards, said that the normal procedure is to call the police whenever there's a counterfeit bill, and that normally what the police would do is come and question the person who gave the bill if he's still on site, which in many cases they're not, to find out where that person got the bill, because you really don't know how long it's been circulating. Instead, in this instance, a man lost his life because the police decided to pin him down to the ground, though there is no uh, evidence of a substantial struggle, to pin him down to the ground, and one man decides to put his knee on the other man's neck for eight-plus minutes until he's dead. I know I'm describing things that all of us have lived with this week, but they fall like dominoes one after another, as Trevor Noah, the late night comedian, points out. And he's saying is, when you look at the whole context, you begin to understand how so much emotion can be released. But as Christians, as Christians, how should we respond to such things? You know, there's a famous Christian leader in America who I think said it well. Frederick Douglass, the preacher and abolitionist, said this, If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. In the scriptures, there is a man who was frustrated with injustice, and I want to take you to his story this morning. His name was Habakkuk. And he lived in a society where the rich controlled the reins of power and they manipulated the system in order to advance themselves. They took from the weak. They took from the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. And they exploited their power to take advantage of others. And in the prophecy of Habakkuk, he cries out to God, We pick up in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and, it, and justice never prevails. The wicked, him in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. This is what Habakkuk saw, and this is what people see in the United States today. And if you have never experienced that injustice, if, if perhaps it has never been focused on you, let me ask you for a level of humility. Believe people when they tell you it is their experience. Don't dismiss someone who tells you that they experience this country in a manner that is different than the way in which you experience this country. The country was designed to give a certain experience to some and a very different experience to others, and it has not been entirely corrected. If you read the Declaration of Independence, that beautiful document, it starts off with these wonderful words about why this country needs to be independent. But as you work your way through that document, you will find that Native Americans in this country are, are described within that very Declaration of Independence as savages, and the country was never designed for them. African Americans were enchained at the time, and there is nothing in the the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution that was designed to set African Americans free. It took a civil war to do that, and it has taken an ongoing struggle to try to undo the various iterations of oppression that have happened since. And all of these things in the United States were codified according to race. You can try to be post-racial. You can b- try to be a person who does not see color. But if you don't see color, then you will not see st- systemic injustice within this country because it was designed around race. A classification was created called white. And that whiteness obliterated the ethnic heritage of people from from. Ireland and from England and from Poland and from, you know, the Nordic countries all over, they were all lumped together and created this new category called white, and you had to have that label in order to receive the best that the society had to offer. In response to that, you had people petitioning the government to be classified as white so that they could receive the benefits of this society. And it goes on today. And for some, just this past week, they saw for the first time what black people in the country have been complaining about for generations. And it mobilized people all over the country. You look at the crowds in Minneapolis and you see they are predominantly white crowds. You look at the crowds in Salt Lake City and it looks like they are almost all white crowds. And you find people getting furious that the country that they love is not what they thought it was. This is Habakkuk. As he cries out to God in a country that was actually supposed to be the people of God, and he says, how long, O oh God, will you, uh, will you cause me to look upon injustice? He says the law is perverted. Here's God's response in verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. This Explanation that God gives is that He is going to bring a nation that is brutal and have them come and invade Israel, invade this country that was supposed to be dedicated to God, and they will bring judgment through violence. Well, this baffles Habakkuk. As God goes on to describe the ruthlessness of the Babylonians, that they cast a net. Uh, into nations catching people like fish and then offer sacrifices to their net worshiping their own power. Habakkuk sees this solution as being very puzzling but I think it's an important reminder to you and I That when justice does not come in peaceful means, when justice does not come in response to God's law, when it doesn't come as an act of contrition and repentance, it comes through violence. This is not a glorification or advocacy of violence. It is a warning from the scriptures themselves that if you are obstinate in the face of God's rebuke, look for something devastating, look for a revolution. Even, even President Lincoln, in his inaugural address in talking about the Civil War, said that God would be just if he were to require bloodshed for every lash of the whip that had been given to a black person in slavery. He looked at the Civil War as an act of God's judgment upon this nation for the sin of slavery. The president saw what was happening and recognized that God was intervening in the lack of repentance of wicked people within this nation. And we need to be warned from Scripture that God will act if people do not repent and act themselves. Well... As Habakkuk hears about God's method of bringing about justice within Israel, he's shocked. He's shocked that God would use people even more wicked than the people that he's judging. Listen to this. Uh, We read in verse 12, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? When you are tempted to look at looters, to look at people who are burning cars and burning buildings and to say that those people have no justification for what they are doing, to say that we need to crack down on them. Let's pause for a moment and recognize how much we have failed those who are crying out in despair, those who are venting their anger and desperation in violent ways. Let's pause and recognize how long people have waited for justice to prevail, and desperate times lead often to desperate measures. Without any apology or justification for what is happening, let's pause long enough to at least have an understanding of what is happening. It is a warning that unless we take action to correct the wickedness of this unjust system, then it will be overturned by violent means. Let me give you an example of the kind of wickedness I'm talking about. There is a a policy that is in operation in the United States today that explains why it took so long to bring charges against these officers for the murder of an unarmed black man in Minneapolis. Why did it take so long? Because there is a practice in the United States where police officers have qualified immunity. They are not allowed to be prosecuted or to be sued. They have qualified immunity given certain circumstances. You have to have overwhelming evidence in order to actually convict a police officer of the exact same crime that you and I would be arrested for immediately. And because the Supreme Court has upheld this idea of qualified immunity for police officers, lower courts know that they can't get convictions and they don't even bring the cases to trial. Now this isn't the only reason why people are not arrested or, or police officers are not arrested and charges are not brought. One of the reasons is because the relationship between district attorneys and police, police officers is a cooperative relationship. And so in one sense, you're asking the, the, uh, the fox to guard the hen house here. You're, acti- you're asking people who work together on a regular basis, who are friends, to now turn and actually police one another. And this is why you always end up with these cases going to the FBI or some outside agency that has to put pressure on the local police, the local jurisdiction to take action against one of their own. Or you get somebody with a camera. Brothers and sisters, let's not be naive. Injustice has always gone on. God has always stood against it. He has always raised up someone to speak against it, to act against it, and when People who are in the positions with the power to to change it refuse to take action. God even uses extreme measures. Well, Habakkuk cries out to God again in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God has promised that he will bring righteousness, he will bring justice, and he said, but my righteous ones must live by their faith. Brothers and sisters, we must live by our confidence in God. As Frederick Douglass talks about, we must always struggle against injustice, but we must struggle in ways that are consistent with our king. Jesus Christ said he came to free the captives. He came to bring righteousness, but he came with a revolution of love that actually awakens the oppressor to their own wickedness and turns their hearts. So yes, let's speak out. Let's take to the streets and let's take to the ballot box and let's take to the phones and to Twitter and to Instagram and every means that we can to bring out injustice and to overturn it. Let's do it in the name of Jesus, never becoming the monsters that we seek to defeat, always allowing the spirit of the Prince of Peace to bring about justice that leads to peace through those who are the peacemakers in his name. The struggle for justice, the struggle is real. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for you, you are a righteous judge and you demand that those who are in positions of power act with righteousness. I pray, Father God, for a greater time of solidarity than we have ever seen, a time of coming together, a time of loving one another first as fellow human beings, as those created in the image of God. A time of solidarity, of standing with those who are oppressed, whomever they may be. And especially for those of us who name the name of Jesus, may we remember that you too were a victim of police brutality. You too were arrested on false charges, beaten, tortured to death. You too have experienced the wickedness of those in power abusing that power. But you said to us in this world, we will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And so Jesus, you as the one who rose from the dead, conquering the wicked powers that are behind the people in power on this earth, you, Lord Jesus, you are our king and you will empower us to express the victory that you won on the cross and the victory that you won in rising from the dead, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.